The following sermon was delivered on April 11, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff gave this sermon entitled Strengthening the Church on Revelation 3, 7 through 13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I have done some door-to-door evangelism in my life, and I'm pleased to say that at least uh, some folks here in the church and with us tonight have had the privilege of doing the same. And when I've gone knocking on doors in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania, just outside of West Philadelphia, not the one in our text, but a different Philadelphia, and when I've gone knocking on doors down here in, in Woodruff, South Carolina, And even when we went through the neighborhood back here, just singing Christmas carols in December, I was really pleased to have such a warm reception from my neighbors. But you know, there was another time I went knocking on doors and ended up knocking on a lot more doors because nobody wanted to talk. This was in a heavily Catholic area of Northeast Philadelphia, and it was hard ground. Well, one of the lessons that I learned from this is that Jesus Christ is the one who goes in and opens whatever door that I might end up knocking on, or you might end up knocking on, seeking for an opportunity to witness to what Christ has done. It it doesn't matter how hard you knock. It doesn't matter how many doors you knock on. It doesn't even matter what kind of plan of action you might have or what kind of materials you have with you. No, the determining uh, condition, the determining feature of your experience will be if Christ opens the door. It's one of the messages of our text tonight. And it's a message that keys right into the heart of all of these letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These letters were written to spur on the churches to faithful witness where they were. Now, each letter is a little different, has a different emphasis because of the different churches and their different situations, their different strengths, and their different weaknesses, their different triumphs and levels of righteousness, and their different sins and temptations and even capitulations or compromises to the spirit of the age. But all of these letters have in common a call, an encouragement, an exhortation, a command, even just a support to maintain a faithful witness in a dark and difficult world. Now, what marks out the letter to the church in Philadelphia? Well, I'm pleased to say, as one who was born in a different Philadelphia, that this particular church was the most highly favored of the seven. We began with Ephesus. We end with Laodicea. Those are the two sickest churches of the bunch, particularly Laodicea, as we'll see next time I fill the pulpit here. In the middle of the set of seven, you have uh, Thyatira and uh, Sardis, and you have uh, Pergamum, and those churches all had some good, but a whole lot of bad. They were very weak. And then uh, the second church, which we saw months ago at this point, was Smyrna, which, though faithful, um, wasn't particularly active. Rather, it was a persecuted church. It didn't have much opportunity to be active. But Philadelphia Christ has nothing ill to say to them. In fact, he commends them for their works. He commends them for their faithfulness. 
He doesn't say they're going to meet with harsh persecution, but rather he recognizes some of the difficulties they've had, and he merely encourages them, warmly encourages them to maintain their faithfulness in this difficult situation. And so the purpose of this letter, and really the purpose of my message tonight, is to encourage and to exhort you, the church, to remain Christ-like, to remain Christ-like as faithful witnesses. When I consider those of you whom I know here, we are a church of men and women and children who are, in one degree or another, uniquely set apart to service to, the, to Christ. We have missionaries, elders, deacons, seminary students, and future pastor's kids all among us. And there is something unique about that makeup. And so I am coming to exhort you and to encourage you to remain Christ-like and faithful as faithful witnesses. The main idea that I seek to impress upon you from this text is that Christ the Holy One promises to strengthen His church against temptation so that we shall dwell with Him for eternity. Christ the Holy One promises to strengthen His church against temptation so that we shall dwell with Him for eternity. We'll look at this under three headings. Christ's holiness in verse 7, Christ's promise to His church in verses 8 through 11, and then the Christian's eternal dwelling place in verses 12 and 13. So starting right at the beginning with Christ's holiness, look at verse 7 with me. We read, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Now, like all of the descriptions of Christ in these various letters, this goes back and draws from and expands upon what was presented to us in chapter 1 of Revelation about who Christ is and, and what He's about. And in fact, these words, He who is holy, literally the Holy One, the True One, is another way of saying faithful witness from chapter 1, verse 5. It's a bit of a paraphrase. And the reason I can say that with confidence is Christ in the next letter to the church in Laodicea introduces himself in a similar way. He says, the amen, the faithful and true witness, which takes language then from verses 7 and chapter 1, uh, verse 5 to introduce himself in another way. So this holy one, this true one, is the same Christ as the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. But what I want to point out to you about these words in this context is that these are attributes, divine attributes, which are inseparable from one another when talking about God. God is always the Holy One, and He is always the True One. In fact, God Himself is uniquely the Holy One and the True One. In chapter 6, verse 10, we read God described in this manner and this is just one place among many in Isaiah and Revelation. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is the cry of the martyrs. And how do they address their God, our God, as the holy and true one? And here we see Christ described in these divine terms. And so if somebody were to ask you, and particularly if you're out witnessing, let's say you run into a Jehovah's Witness, here is one of many places where you can go to say, look, the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ as God. He is called the Holy One, the True One. 
This is uniquely divine. And what we see here about Jesus in this connection is that true here is being used to describe his faithfulness more so than his authenticity or genuineness. It's not merely that he's true to himself and transparent, though that's certainly the case, but he's faithful. That is the, that's the sense in which he is true. He's true in a holy way, and he's holy in a true way. Doesn't this strike you with awe and wonder that one such as this would come and speak to us? That one such as this would come and visit with us? As we prayed in our prayer of confession, that he would come, that we might become like him. That we, too, might, in a sense, reflect that holiness and that truth by his work in us. And what is that work? Well, Christ empowers the saints in Philadelphia to be witnesses like him even though, as we'll see in verse 9, there is fierce opposition. Though there is so much pressure to compromise, yet we too are called to be holy and true, and he grants us the strength to do it. So we see this divine holiness in the first half of verse 7. In the second half of verse 7, we then see that Christ's holiness is reflected in the fact that he is a worthy ruler. He is worthy to be the head of the church. Look at the second half of verse 7 with me. He has the king, the key of David, the one who has the key of David, having the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, says this. He's sovereign over death in Hades and having the keys of death in Hades in chapter 1, verse 18. And here we see that he also has the key of David, showing that he's sovereign over the kingdom of God, God's covenant people, in this case, the church. And and what does that sovereignty actually entail? Well, it means that he controls, he governs entry and exit from the kingdom of God. No one comes in unless he lets them in. He opens the door. And in order to communicate this to us and to the church in Philadelphia, Jesus draws from what might, to our eyes, seem to be an obscure reference in Isaiah chapter 22, starting at verse 20 and continuing to about 25 where we see this man, Eliakim, this righteous man, being appointed by Yahweh, by God, as steward, chief of staff in the kingdom of Israel, replacing a wicked man named Shebna. And this Eliakim, is, we're told, is given the keys, and he can open and no one can shut. He shuts and no one opens. He has absolute authority, appointed by God, over the kingdom of Israel. And in like manner, Jesus Christ here, This holy and true one is given absolute authority over the kingdom of God to determine who enters and who exits. The reason why he brings this aspect out to the church in Philadelphia, and this is key for understanding, is these dear saints have been ostracized. They've been expelled. They've been kept out of the visible community of God by what we read later, the synagogue of Satan. The elders in this uh, synagogue of ethnic Jews who are rejecting Jesus to this point have said, you're not welcome here. We cast you out. Now, perhaps this church in Philadelphia was mostly Gentiles who then would have been thrown into confusion thinking, but wait, we're worshiping the Messiah that you believe should be coming. We, we know he's come. Why are you casting us out? Shouldn't you be with us? Or if this church is majority Jewish, Now they've just been kicked out. They've been excommunicated from what they considered to be for their whole lives, a visible church of God. 
So you understand why what Christ says here about himself is such a comfort to them. And he is a worthy ruler. Like righteous Eliakim, he is uniquely worthy to wield this authority in the church. So granting this apologetic against what we'll find out will be pseudo or fake Jews, Christ has opened the kingdom to the church in Philadelphia. And he's reassuring them. Brothers and sisters, I don't know that this is the case for any of us, but perhaps you have family members who, thinking themselves to be righteous and true, yet keep you at arm's length because they're in a different denomination or perhaps they're in an apostate church or perhaps you have relatives who are involved in one of the cults and they're saying, no, you're not part of God's favored people because you don't believe like me. I seek to merely comfort you and to show you that Christ comes and He says, no man determines who enters or who goes out, but I have the key of David. I am the one who opens and no one will shut. I am the one who shuts and no one opens. So when we seek to press into that kingdom, we must come through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and find comfort there. We see Christ's holiness in verse 7. And then moving into verses 8 through 11, we see Christ's promise to his church. The promise of this holy one. The promise of this one who has all authority in God's kingdom. And what does he promise? Well, first he gives us the grounds of his promise. Why it is he's going to give what he promises. And then he shows us the substance of his promise. What it is he's going to show us. In verse 8, if you look at, look at it with me, you see, I know your deeds. And then the way I read the text... We also have after that, that you have a little power. I know that you have a little power is how I understand this grammatically. In the middle is this curious phrase interjected in what he's observing about the church here. He says, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Here is the grounds of why Christ will deliver his promise. What he has done is he has opened the door for these faithful saints in Philadelphia who want nothing more than to see the church grow, to see the gospel to go out, who want nothing more than to see men and women and children brought into the kingdom. He says to them, I have set before you or put before you an open door which no one can shut. And this is the ground for everything else he's going to give them. He has opened a door for fruitful ministry. Now, the reason why we should understand this particular clause to be referencing evangelistic opportunities or opportunities for faithful witness is because of how this phrase, putting before you an open door, how it's used elsewhere in the Scriptures. We see it in Acts chapter 14. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter two, um, 16, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 4. But what I want to direct you to in particular are Acts 14 and Colossians 4. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas come back from their first missionary journey, and they're coming and they're giving a report about what they've done. And certainly the missionaries and, and other evangelistic workers among us know this language and would use it themselves. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, and how what? how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're rejoicing at this surprising development 
that God has burst open the gates of his kingdom for the Gentiles to come in. And then in Paul's ministry in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, a famous missionary prayer request. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. And in verse 4, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And he continues on from there. This language of opening a door, when it's used in connection with a church in a difficult place like Philadelphia, or with a missionary, or with some other evangelistic worker or minister of the gospel. This language is God's assurance that your efforts will not be in vain. I'm opening a door for you to see fruit from your labors. You might be wondering, what is the fruit of the church in Philadelphia? Is there a church in the modern-day Turkish city that occupies that place? There actually is. It's very weak now since the 1920s. But from the first century all the way until the early 1920s, this was the one place of the seven places in Revelation 2-3 to that had some kind of visible, thriving, and sizable Christian community. This is the one place. Brothers and sisters, Christ was true to his word. Now, Christ opened a door in Cashville and Reedville for the gospel in the 1840s. Is he going to keep it open for 2,000 years? Well, I certainly hope so if he tarries, don't you? And what he's promised this church in Philadelphia is, I've set before you an open door for the gospel, and he was true to that promise. And that is the grounds of everything else that flows out of that. He's given them strength to remain faithful, though there isn't any big cultural impact yet. And now Christ's sovereign work of granting them entry and perseverance is on full display in scripturated in Revelation chapter 3 for us to consider, for the church to consider for hundreds of years. In what, or rather in whom, is your trust as we go about this humble work here in Cashville at Antioch, or as you go about your work in Columbia, or down at Woodruff Road, or in Virginia Beach? In whom or what is your trust? Methodology, a particular minister or pastor, or in Jesus Christ who alone opens and shuts doors? May this be an encouragement to us to lean on him who never fails, who is always faithful in this connection. Now moving on from the grounds of the promise in verse 8, we then see in verses 9 through 11 the substance of the promise. He fleshes this out in three different uh, aspects. First, in verse 9, he shall use this church in Philadelphia to save the Jews. Look at what he says. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Now, this the word that's translated bow down at your feet is a word that could indicate divine worship or it could indicate expression of respect. But either way, this is a very encouraging promise, isn't it? Whether they're going to come in and say, we recognize your right church in Philadelphia, will you receive us into your fellowship? Or they come and in the midst of the church, they too worship the one true and living God. 
either way, this is a great encouragement to the saints in Philadelphia that by their faithfulness, instrumentally speaking, God working through their faithful witness, these people who have been persecuting them, pushing them to the margins of society, perhaps even compromising with the pagan Roman culture of Philadelphia themselves in order to gain wealth or prestige or social access, that they will be humbled, convicted of their sin, and brought into the fellowship of God's true Israel. And then he says, I will make them know that I have loved you. There's a great irony in that clause. Not because God doesn't love them yet, but because what he's telling them is that though these folks, whom I'm going to bring in and humble and change, they think that they're true Israel. In fact, I'm going to fulfill one of the most glorious promises I made to my old covenant people by fulfilling it with you. Demonstrating to them that you are, in fact, the true Israel of God. That promise is in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 4, where the prophet says to the people, he says, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. What he's promising to the church here is the same promise that God made to his people in Isaiah's day, that he would demonstrate his love that he had set upon them as redeemer and as creator all those years ago. And that's coming to fulfillment in little Philadelphia, having been pushed to the margins of society. That's the first promise. And it resonates well with, with what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, on this rock I will build my church, that I will use you for the salvation of many others. And what Paul indicates and Barnabas indicate as their missionary uh, strategy in uh, Romans chapter 11 to go to the Gentiles so what? That the Jews might be saved. That's how God works. What an encouragement that no matter how feeble and weak and, and, and minimal our efforts might seem wherever the Lord brings us, yet what He's doing in our midst will result in the salvation of many others. This is our prayer on Wednesday nights, isn't it? That the Lord would bring visitors, that they would be converted that we wouldn't just be another stop on you know, the church circuit for moderately reformed or truly reformed people in upstate South Carolina, but rather we would have neighbors come here and either grow by leaps and bounds in their faith through what God is doing or, in fact, be brought into the kingdom initially. Oh, how we rejoice in our churches when new members come. And particularly, they're not discounting transfer, but particularly upon profession of faith. Oh, glorious God, what great mystery that the foolishness of God has been made the wisdom of God. The second promise he makes here is in verse 10, he will protect them in what he says here in our translation as um, the hour of testing. could also be the hour of temptation, but it probably is the hour of testing. Regardless, what he's referring here. Uh, what he's referring to here is, is what he describes in detail in the rest of Revelation. Tribulation, testing, pressing in, uh, could be rendered temptation. That the judgment which comes upon the world, which results in the hardening of those who are apart from Christ, in fact, is the precise occasion 
by which God will preserve and keep and even sanctify his church. Sanctify his church. They will be tempted in these times of testing to compromise, to downgrade, to give up to the spirit of the age, the culture, the foolishness of the Greeks. And yet he says to them that I also will keep you from the hour of testing. There's only one other place where this language, I will keep you, appears in the New Testament. It's in John chapter 17, verse 15. As you may be aware, John 17 is Christ's high priestly prayer. He's interceding on behalf of the church on the eve of his crucifixion. And this is what he says. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. To keep them from the evil one who is himself the tempter. You know, what's interesting about that is this verse in Revelation 3, um, verse 10, is often used by dispensationalists to justify a, a pre-tribulational rapture. But look, the one other place where that language is used, what does Jesus say? I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I do not ask you to rapture them, but to keep them from the evil one. This is like that prayer request I heard from a, a foreign missionary through the head of MTW, Lloyd Kim, when he came to present MTW's mission to our presbytery. Dr. Kim gave this story that he said, brother, how can we pray for you to a foreign missionary in a place where there's a lot of pressure to fold? And the pastor didn't say, pray for wealth or health, prosperity. The pastor said, pray for faithfulness, that we would remain faithful. That's the promise God gives here. He says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. I will keep you from that evil one. I will keep you from the temptation to fold. And this is what James says in James 1.27 is, in fact, the heart or essence of true religion. Caring for widows and orphans, yes, and being kept from temptation, being kept from evil, being kept in the care of of God. And then the third aspect of this promise in verse 11, it doesn't seem like a promise, but it really is when he says, in this connection, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Christ promises to come quickly to do what? To strengthen you as you hold fast. He comes in response to that prayer request. Pray that he would keep us faithful, that he would strengthen us. Well, Christ himself comes to do that very thing. This may have a reference to his second coming, but more likely because of where it is in Revelation, here in chapter 3, in this particular letter, it's actually a promise that he's sending forth his spirit even now upon them and within them to work in them, to empower them there. That Christ is coming by his spirit, by his word and spirit, inseparable, the ministry of the Word as it goes forth, accompanied by the Spirit of God, is effectual, effective for empowering and equipping the saints for all that God calls you to. And in every situation, God puts you in, in fact. And so when He says, hold fast, it is a call to endure, but a call, an exhortation, even a command with a promise. Endure, and here's the power to do it. We see... The grounds and substance of the promise, keeping in mind that all of this is founded upon the work of Christ himself. 
It's all of grace. We see Christ's promise to His church, and then the ultimate picture of what follows upon Christ's fulfillment of that promise is found in verses 12 and 13, when we read about the Christian's eternal dwelling place. The Christian's eternal dwelling place. This dwelling place is really characterized, defined by communion with God. In verse 12, if you read it with me, he who overcomes, or rather the victor, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That word temple is the inner temple, the most holy of holies. That's where you will be a pillar. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. All of these different ways of putting this promise have as a primary reference communion with the triune God in glory. A communion, actually, which begins now through the work of Christ. What did Christ come to do? What do you believe Christ came to do? Did He come to transform culture? Did He come to wave His banner of kingship over the nations? Maybe. But primarily, what He came to do was to seek and to save the lost. Save sinners. He set aside His glory in heaven. He took upon Him the humble vesture of mankind, though without sin, being conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary, who calls Him herself. She calls Him her Redeemer. And He came and lived and then died that we might be set free from sin and brought into relationship, fellowship, communion with God. Through Jesus Christ the Son, by His Word and Spirit, He brings us to the Father. This is a great narrative of Scripture, if I can put it that way. That that which blew up in Genesis chapter 3, man being alienated from God as a result of sin, is reversed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And He gives us a picture of the result. No more beautiful picture could be found. Why do I say that? First of all, you're characterized as a victor. That phrase, he who overcomes, or the victor, it's not really related to the rest of the verse grammatically. It's just kind of thrown out there. The victor, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What does it mean to be a pillar? It's, it's not like you're a paver on the portico of God. You're not you know, a disposable plank on the, on the wooden ramp on the church building of God. No, you are a pillar in the holy of holies. No, even righteous Eliakim. He was but a peg in the temple, is how he's described. And shortly after his death, his descendants have no inheritance in the temple. But Jesus Christ, if we can put it this way, the greater Eliakim, he never departs from the immediate presence of the Father. And that's where we will be with him. That's where He has brought us, according to this text. Never denying Christ, in verses 8, 10, and 11, gives birth to this inheriting His new name in the very presence of God the Father. You know what's really interesting is in A.D. 17, not 150 years after the colony of Philadelphia was established, there was a great earthquake and... The whole city was destroyed, probably all of its pagan temples as well, all the pillars falling over. And yet God is saying, I will set you up as an immovable pillar 
No earthquake can dislodge you. You will never go out here in my midst. Philadelphia as well, originally named for the king of that region's brother, who was a very good brother to him, city of brotherly love, it actually gets two new names at different points. At one point, it's named after Caesar. At another point, it's named after somebody else who helped to rebuild it. And so what Christ is doing with this particular people is he's drawing on their personal, social, uh, city history to make an eternal point that I will set my name on you. It will never change. I will set you up in God's temple and you will never be taken out or dislodged again. It's permanent. He opens the doors for entry so that we can be here to stay. And the means of that entrance is in verse 13. You know, it's interesting. As I was reading commentaries, verse 13 kind of gets sloughed off because it's a common refrain in these letters. But I think it's integrally attached to verse 12. And this is why. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If we go back to that passage in Romans where Paul lays out his missionary strategy in Romans 11, first uh, going to the Gentiles that the Jews might be saved, if you back up one chapter and go to Romans 10, 17, what do you read? Paul tells the church in Rome, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You want to bear Christ's name? You must hear Christ's voice. You must hear the call of that great shepherd of the sheep. And if you hear his voice with a contrite heart, that faith then comes through that hearing. Heavenly mindedness. Hearing what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The Spirit of Christ says to the churches. And the discernment that comes from that heavenly mindedness. These are marks of Christ's presence with us. This call to hear what the Spirit says is actually something of another promise, isn't it? I will unstop your ears to hear what the Spirit says. Christ's presence then strengthens the church, strengthens us, strengthens you and me against the temptation that comes from without, and as long as we bear these bodies of flesh that comes up from within. And so then to whom do we listen? Do we listen to that voice? Do we pay attention during the preaching of the Word on Sundays? Yes. But do we open up the Bibles, our Bibles, throughout the week and ask Him to make known to us the riches of Christ, the treasures of Christ, the goodness, the glory, even the law and statutes and ordinances of Christ, that we might live by them, that we might be strengthened by His Gospel. Everything you do for God, must be done in the strength of Christ. John Owen makes this point. I actually stumbled on it by opening up the Oxford English Dictionary, big, you know, gigantic set, and looking at the entry for strength. And one of the citations is, it gives actually from John Owen, his work on indwelling sin. And he makes the point that everything you do for God, everything you do to fight against indwelling sin in particular, must be done on Christ's strength. If you try to do it on your own strength, you will fail miserably. So even the little strength that Philadelphia had to remain faithful, it came from Christ. And he was going to give them more. He was going to increase it. The strength which bursts forth through your weakness when you are cast down 
is that very strength of Jesus Christ Himself, which works by His Spirit in and through your reading of Scripture, your works of devotion, your prayers, your coming and attending to the means of grace in church. Whatever exertion you make, it must be made on the strength of Christ. I can't emphasize that enough. And it's because Christ the Holy One promises to strengthen His church, promises to strengthen you against temptation in the hour of testing so that we shall dwell with Him for eternity as pillars in His temple. You know, we can knock on every door in Spartanburg County, every door in Greenville County for that matter. We can have the most beautiful little country church building once we get this place fixed up. We can have the most viewed website on Google. We can have the sharpest printed materials to hand out to our neighbors. But if we have not the strength and love of Jesus Christ, all of that will be in vain. The door for ministry will be shut to us, won't it? He alone can open it. He's not impressed with man-made schemes for church growth. But he does desire the beauty of holiness the beauty of true and faithful witness in our lives, individually and corporately, all together. Is this your aim as we seek here to reestablish a gospel witness at Old Antioch Church? Is this your aim as you go about your ministry in whatever church you're a part of? Is this your prayer for the flock here, or your prayer for these missionaries whom we pray for week in and week out on Wednesdays? For the leadership here as we pray for our provisional session and pray to the Lord to raise up elders from among us. May it continue to be our purpose. For Christ the Holy One promises to strengthen His church against temptation so that we shall dwell with Him for eternity. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.